respond to the vicious attacks that were just leveled at me, but I will do that in private and Terry will be sufficiently shamed, but we're glad that you've chosen to worship here at Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, It's a great morning to be together and worshiping the Lord together. And we are continuing in our Trustworthy Sayings series. This is week two of our Trustworthy Sayings. And basically the idea is that we're looking at three of Paul's letters. The first two being to Timothy and the third one being to Titus. And in these three letters, there are five different times where Paul will say something and he will lead into it by saying, this is a trustworthy saying. Or he'll follow it by saying, this statement is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance. And as we talked about last week, that is almost a ringing endorsement from Paul to guys like Timothy and guys like Titus saying, guys, what I'm about to tell you is really important. If you don't hear anything else from these hundred words or this paragraph or this chapter, then this is it. Listen to this. Pay attention to this. You can take this to the bank. And so that's what we're doing, looking at each one of these trustworthy sayings and determining what they meant for Timothy, what they meant for Titus, and what they mean for us in the church today. And last week, we looked at the first trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And that trustworthy saying was that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Paul even adds, of whom I am the foremost. Now, we talked about Timothy. Timothy receives this letter as a young church leader in a big, big city of Ephesus. Timothy was mentored by Paul and trained by Paul. But at the same time, this was much more than just a teacher and mentor relationship. Timothy and Paul were very, very close. In Scripture, we know next to nothing about Timothy's father. But we do know that Paul took Timothy under his wing. There's that intimate relationship between the two. And Timothy is facing some pretty significant challenges in Ephesus. Just the sheer size of the city would be enough to intimidate a church leader like Timothy. But you've also got a city that's dedicated to other gods. They worship the goddess Artemis and they tie their success to Artemis. If we worship Artemis really, really well, then our city is going to prosper and we're going to do well. But if we don't worship Artemis, then we're going to go downhill as a city. So naturally, it would be a challenge for Timothy to come into that town and say, hey, you need to stop worshiping Artemis and start worshiping Jesus instead. He's going to face some serious opposition if he fulfills that ministry. But not only that, he's dealing with false teachers from within the church. People who were once trusted leaders, people who were once valuable people contributing to the mission of the church in Ephesus. But now they have turned their backs on sound teaching. And they're teaching a salvation by following customs rather than by trusting in God's grace. So you put all this together and Timothy could really use some encouragement. And Paul does just that in this letter. He reminds Timothy of God's grace. He talks about how God showed him mercy and showed him grace and the grace from God that overflowed within him and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And Paul told Timothy, don't worry about the false teachers. We know that we're not saved by customs. We're saved by God's grace. And Timothy, don't ever forget that. He encourages Timothy that, Timothy, if God can use me, God can use you too. Because think about my story. 
Think about who I was. Think about what I did. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And I dragged Christians out of their homes and threw them in jail. I stood back and watched as Stephen was killed for his faith in Christ. So, Timothy, if you ever doubt that God can use you in this big city that you're doing ministry in, think about me. Because God used me and he will use you too. And then finally, Paul shows us and shows Timothy that as he thinks back to his story, as he thinks back to the grace of God that he has experienced, as he thinks back on all the ways that God has used him over the years, in spite of his sin, in spite of his issues, in spite of his flaws, Paul worships. And he says to the immortal and invisible God, be glory forever and ever. And these three things that Paul does for Timothy, reminding him of grace, encouraging him that God can use him and challenging him to worship, we too need that reminder and that encouragement and that challenge from time to time. We often need to be reminded of God's grace. We can never hear it enough. We often need to be encouraged that God will use us no matter where it is that we are, no matter what it is that we're doing, no matter what baggage we have in the past. God can use you to glorify himself, to use you as an example of his perfect patience for those who might believe for eternal life. And we, too, need to be challenged that we would think back on God's grace. Think of how God saved us. Think about how God is using us and be able to respond in no other way than being amazed by what God is doing in our lives, in spite of us. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the trustworthy statement we left with. That was the one thing that I hope you left with last week. And that brings us to where we are today. The second trustworthy saying in this series is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to that passage. If you don't have a Bible with you, use one of ours. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But before we get into the passage, let's pray together and then we'll get started. God, we are humbled by the ways that you use us. We're humbled that you can take imperfect people like us, people who have all kinds of issues, all kinds of baggage, and yet somehow, as stubborn as we are, you can use us for your glory. And God, I pray that we would just keep in mind that every single one of us, we are tools in your hand. Apart from you, we don't bear any fruit, but with your help and with the help of your spirit and the guidance of your word, God, you can use us for incredible things. And God, I pray that we will never forget that trustworthy saying, as simple as it is, as much as we hear it in the church, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that's every single one of us. So God, I pray that this morning, as we look at the second trustworthy statement, that we'll really hear what it is that you have to say to us. No matter where we are or what we're doing or what issues we might bring in with us this morning, we're all different. But God, I know that you can speak to us in some way through your word this morning. And I pray that you'll do that. And I pray that we'll be attentive to that. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. First Timothy chapter three, starting in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. The last passage we talked about last week, we had to dig a few verses into it before we got to that word, trustworthy saying, or that phrase, trustworthy saying. This week, it's right from the very beginning. So, 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay. So right from the very get-go, we see what Paul is going to talk about here with this trustworthy saying. We see that Paul is going to talk about leadership. And leadership in the church is important to Paul. It clearly is important to him, or else he wouldn't reserve one of his trustworthy sayings for this topic. But clearly, leadership matters to Paul. And he starts talking about leadership to Timothy, practically speaking, because so many of the issues that Timothy is dealing with, so many of the problems that Timothy is facing, especially with false teachers, goes back to a problem of leadership. It goes back to leaders in the church who are abandoning their calling, leaders in the church who are being dragged away and probably letting themselves be dragged away by false teaching. And so Paul makes it clear to Timothy, Timothy, you need to take leadership seriously because that's what's been a big source of your problems here in Ephesus. But even bigger than that, not just practically speaking, Paul's conviction is that a church's leadership matters because the church's mission matters. A church's leadership matters because the church's mission matters. And that's why Paul gives these high, high, high standards for leaders in the church and the kinds of leaders that Timothy should be looking for in Ephesus. And I want you to notice one thing in this passage. Leadership for Paul is not so much about what leaders do. It's not so much about what leaders are capable of. It's not so much about what skills they have. Leadership for Paul, his bigger concern is not what they do, but who they are. That seems to be the main point that Paul is getting at. That's what matters. You may have heard me use this illustration before, but a Gallup survey in 2013 said that only 47% of those who filled out this survey rated clergy or church leaders high on honesty and ethics. And that was an all-time low since 1977. And I believe that in the same way that leadership matters to Paul, for that reason alone, leadership should matter to the church today. Because whether we like it or not, whether it's fair or unfair, there are people out there who are waiting for Christian leaders in churches and organizations, whatever you want to call it, They are waiting for Christian leaders to fall. They're waiting for Christian leaders to mess up. There are people who are skeptical of the church and skeptical of the mission and the message the church has. And so they are just waiting for some leader out there, some famous leader to get knocked off their pedestal. That way they can say, ha ha ha, we told you these guys are a bunch of crooks. It's all a big sham. So I believe that leadership matters in the church just as much as ever. It matters for Paul, and I pray that it matters for us too. And then in verse 1, we see something else that Paul mentions, and it's kind of the first qualification that we get into for leadership. It's the qualification that a person should aspire to this task, that this person should desire a noble task. And sometimes that word aspiration has negative connotations, and rightfully so. Aspiration can be a dangerous thing. It can be an unhealthy thing if we only aspire to make a name for ourselves. If our aspiration and our desire for fame or fortune causes us to step on anyone we can around us just so that we can get ahead, just so that we can make a name for ourselves, just so we can glorify ourselves. 
In that sense, aspiration is dangerous and it is a concern and there should be a negative connotation with that. But aspiration does not have to be an inherently bad thing. One can aspire to honor God. One can aspire to lift God's name up in the community, not to make a name for themselves. And these types of people, the types of people who want to lead, the types of people who aspire to lift God's name up, those are the kinds of leader that Paul tells Timothy to look for. People who want this responsibility. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, Peter writes this. This is another passage about leadership and just how important leadership in the church is. And Peter writes, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. The idea is that leaders should not be serving because someone like me coerced them into it. Leaders should not be serving out of obligation or guilt, as in, well, I'm going to be at this church. If I'm going to call myself a real part of this church, I need to be doing something. So I might as well do something where I can feel a little bit more important. That's not why someone serves. Someone should not be serving just to make a name for themselves. Someone should not be serving just so they can get the church to fit all of their preferences perfectly. A person should be leading, Paul tells Timothy, because they truly desire this task. They truly desire this responsibility. They desire to lift God's name up. That's what they aspire to. And that's the first qualification. You don't want people who are doing it because they were guilted into it. You don't want people doing it begrudgingly. You want people who are excited and willing to lead out of a love for Christ and a love for the church and a true sense of calling from God to that task. So let's pick back up in our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach. Let's stop right there, because that's a pretty loaded phrase, above reproach. That's a pretty deep phrase that Paul seems to use there. So the first prerequisite is you have to want to lead. The second prerequisite is being above reproach. Paul says the same phrase in Titus chapter 1, Verse 7. So clearly, this is not just some fluke passage. This really truly means something to Paul, this idea of being above reproach. And at this point, it's important to note that while these standards are really good standards for just about any leader in the church, we also see a word there a word overseer, a word that some translations might translate as elders. And this is a passage that we here at Prairie View use with our elders. So, elders, pay attention. If you're in the room, this passage is specifically for you, particularly for you, even if, no matter how long you've been an elder, this is for you, and this is for me. This is people on staff. This is people who are in offices of the church, people who are leading in the church. This is particularly important to us. And that phrase also, it's important to note that that phrase does not mean perfection. Many people would read this passage and assume, okay, well, if you're going to be above reproach, that pretty much means you have to be perfect. That pretty much means that the only way you can serve in the church is if you have it all together all the time. But that really is not what this phrase is all about. And all the qualifications that follow after this phrase 
they all fall under this umbrella of being above reproach. So what does that exactly mean? Well, the first thing we see, picking up in verse 2 where we left off, Paul writes, the husband of one wife. That's the next qualification that's listed right after being above reproach. Now, this too can be a loaded phrase, one that's important to look at, especially when it comes to appointing leaders in our church. Some people would take this phrase and assume that if you're the husband of one wife, that means you can never be divorced and be a leader in the church. That means you can never be divorced and be an elder in the church. But we at Prairie View have come to the conclusion that no, that is not the main gist of this passage. The main gist of this passage is that leaders need to be people who are faithful to their spouses. They need to be men who love their wives. They may have made mistakes in the past. They may have done things in the past that they're not proud of. But the main concern is, men, are you being faithful to your spouse? Because your first ministry is in your family. And if you don't take that seriously, how can you lead in the church? Paul gets into that even more here in a second. But we also see something about that phrase, the husband of one wife, that I think is important to mention. That phrase for Paul seems to indicate that he assumes that elders will be men. Now, that's something that many people get a little bit upset about. Some people would take that phrase and assume that, well, clearly, if you hold that stance, you must not think that women are capable of leadership at all. Well, we at Prairie View, we do believe that our elders are going to be men. But we don't hold that stance because we believe women are incapable of leadership. We don't hold that stance because I think many of us can probably think of a time where the church was in a deep time of need, whether it's this church or different churches we've been at. And women in the church have stepped up to the plate and done incredible things for the sake of the church and incredible things for the mission that God has given us. We don't hold this stance because women are incapable of leadership. We don't hold this stance because we believe that men are somehow inherently better than women. We don't believe that either. If you look in the mirror, if you're a man, if you have any sense of self-awareness, you should realize that men are not better than women. But we assume what Paul assumes, that leaders in the church will be men. There are people who disagree with us. Good, God-honoring, scripture-exalting people who disagree with us. But this is something that we can disagree about. We don't have to see eye to eye on this. And we don't condemn those people who disagree. And we don't condemn those churches who do it differently. This is simply where we are. So elders, overseers, you are called to be husbands of one wife, men who are faithful to your spouses. And a divorce does not automatically disqualify you. And technically, you don't even have to be married to be an elder. Some people would take that phrase and assume, well, you better be married if you're going to be an elder. The idea is that if you're married, be faithful to your spouse. That's what that qualification gets at. So let's move on in our passage. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. All right, that finishes out verse 3. And as you put all these qualifications together, you see some overlap with a few of these. I mean, sober-minded, self-controlled, eh, those are pretty much the same thing. 
Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Yeah, there's some overlap there. But as you look at all these qualifications together, you start to see a big picture of what Paul is looking for when it comes to leadership. Paul's looking for men of maturity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul makes this comparison and saying, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child and I spoke like a child, but then I became a man. And so I started thinking and speaking and living like a man. We're looking for leaders who are speaking and thinking and living like men, men who are showing maturity in every aspect of life, men who aren't perfect, but men who are growing. Physical maturity, emotional maturity, spiritual maturity, mental maturity, you name it. Paul says that's what leaders are called to be, Timothy. Look for these types of men as you look for leadership. Paul says men of integrity. That stuff about being respectable. That stuff about being hospitable. That stuff about being not quarrelsome. Those are all issues of integrity. Timothy, look for men of integrity. Look for men who are honest. Look for men who keep their word. Look for men who are the same person Saturday night as they are at church on Sunday morning. That's what you look for, Timothy. Men of maturity, men of integrity, and finally, men of humility. And the reason I say humility is because any church leader worth his salt knows that he isn't perfect. Back to that phrase, being above reproach. Philip Towner writes, irreproachability does not mean perfection. If Paul meant without defect or in need of and no need of growth, no one would qualify. Paul wanted in leadership positions those in whom the spirit was actively at work, but not necessarily finished in the whole of life. Leaders are not perfect. Every single one of us has weaknesses. Every single one of us has issues. And we are not examples of perfection, but Lord willing, we are examples of progress. In the big scheme of things, leaders in the church, we are beggars leading other beggars to bread. That's what it comes down to. So leaders, particularly elders, we're called to desire this responsibility. We're called to be men who are above reproach. That doesn't mean perfect, but men who are examples of maturity and integrity and humility. And we're called to be men who are being worked on by the Spirit. As Towner hit on, the spirit is working in these people's lives, in these men's lives. You know, it's tempting to look at a passage like this and view it as a checklist. Okay, if I want to be a leader in the church, I just need to do these things. I need to not be greedy. I need to not be a drunkard. I need to make sure that I'm being hospitable to people who I come into contact with. So, okay, check the box, check the box, check the box. All right, I hope that person changed their tire today. I think I'm good. I think I can be a leader now. But this is not just a checklist. If we take this passage and view it as nothing but window dressing on the outside of a leader, then we are completely missing the point. We're not looking for men who Jesus would describe as whitewashed tombs, men who have it all together on the outside, but inside their hearts are just as bitter and just as black as they ever have been before. And the transformation that is should be happening in the Holy Spirit in their lives just simply hasn't happened. We're not looking for men who have it all together on the outside, but haven't had their hearts changed by the grace of God. We're not looking for men who are simply trying to prove themselves to God, to earn favor, to earn standing with God. That's not the idea at all. The idea of these traits, 
is that they would be fueled by the transformation of the Holy Spirit. That these would be men of maturity, men of integrity, men of humility, not just through trying really hard, not just through trying to be good people when church people are looking, but men who have truly had their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. J. Oswald Sanders writes, Spiritual leadership requires spirit-filled people. Other qualities are important. To be spirit-filled is indispensable. You can meet all the other qualifications. You can be a person who avoids the things you're supposed to avoid, and you do the things you're supposed to do. But if that's not fueled by the Holy Spirit, it's just window dressing. And those are not the kinds of leaders that Timothy should be looking for. Timothy should be looking for men who have been changed by the grace of God. Men who the cross has offended and caused them to repent and caused them to throw themselves at the foot of God's mercy and beg God, God, please change me because I can't be a leader on my own. I can't do anything on my own. I need your help. And God proceeds to give that person the Holy Spirit. And even though they don't do it on their own, They're being changed. They're being chiseled into what God intends them to be. That's the kind of men that Timothy should be looking for. So how do you find these men? How do you make sure that you're not appointing men to leadership who just have it all together on the outside? How do you know that you're not appointing men to leadership who just do and say all the right things on Sunday morning? Well, Paul gives Timothy some advice in verses 4 through 7. Paul tells Timothy, look at the entirety of their lives. We pick up there. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. So Paul tells Timothy, look at the entirety of their lives, Timothy, if you're looking for these men who are above reproach, if you're looking for these men who have had their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit and thus they are bearing fruit. Look in their homes. Look in their families. Their homes and their families might not be perfect. They won't be perfect. But Timothy, are these guys striving to lead in their homes? Are they making mistakes as they strive to lead in their homes? Because we all will. But do they have that desire? Do they truly want to lead their spouses? Do they truly want to lead their kids? Look in their own spiritual lives, Timothy. Are these guys who are just on a spiritual high because they just became followers of Jesus and they want to do something important? Or are these men who have stood the test of time? They've been through challenges. They've been through trials. And yet they are dedicated And the spirit has laid roots in their hearts and that seed has laid roots in their hearts to bear fruit. And finally, Timothy, look in their surrounding communities and especially look at non-believers. Those people who don't know Christ, who associate with these men that you're considering for leadership. What do they have to say? Because after all, their opinions should matter. They're the ones we're trying to reach, Timothy. So look in their homes. Look in their personal spiritual lives and look in the communities around them. Are these men of integrity, men of maturity, men of humility? Because if you truly look at all phases of life, 
you should be able to find that out. Bob Russell writes in a book, Two Church Leaders, Your life and the lives of your leaders preach a louder sermon than anything ever said from the pulpit. Your life and the lives of your leaders preach a louder sermon than anything ever said from the pulpit. Leadership is not just about what someone can do. It's not just about what skills someone can put on display from 945 to 1130 on Sunday morning. Leadership is about who you are in every phase of life. And that's what Paul tells Timothy to look for. Men who are mature, men who have integrity, men who have humility, and all of this is being fueled by the Holy Spirit. So, the question, why does this matter so much at Prairie View Christian Church? Why should this matter to the people in this room when a majority of you are not leaders in this church or in any other church and may not ever aspire to be leaders in this church or any other church? Why should this matter to you? Well, number one, it should matter because, like we said, a church's leadership matters because the church's mission matters. But then on top of that, you hold us accountable. Myself, the elders, all of us. We answer to God, but we also answer to our congregation. And so you are the ones who are called to be praying for us. You are the ones who are called to be trusting us, even when that might be hard sometimes. You are the ones who are called to bring concerns to our attention. If you believe that any one of us is leading in a way that loses credibility for our mission or loses credibility for our church, you hold us accountable. And I pray that you will do that. This should matter to you because you should care about the church's testimony in the community. So I would challenge you, don't just sit quietly back. If you see a leader here, whether it's me or a different staff member or one of our elders, don't just sit quietly back. If you see the way we live or see the things we say and you are concerned about the church's testimony in the community, we want you to bring that to our attention. And finally, this should matter to you because while you may not choose to be a leader here, you may not aspire to this task. There are some areas in life that, whether you like it or not, you, be, you may be more of a leader than you realize. Like it or not, you may be the closest thing to a spiritual leader in your office. You may be the closest thing to a spiritual leader in your school or your neighborhood. So I pray that you will take passages like this seriously. If you're married, you're called to be a spiritual leader to your spouse. If you have kids, you are called to be a spiritual leader to your kids. And I pray that every single one of us will read this passage and truly be challenged by it and truly be humbled by it. No matter what office we hold or what title we have or what task we've aspired to or haven't aspired to. This passage matters for every single one of us. And by God's grace, God will use people like you and people like me, even though we so often fall short. And even though we are so far from being perfect, by God's grace, he will use those people who are submitted to him, those people who desire to lead for his glory, those people who have been transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit and are continuing to be transformed and changed. It is by grace that we have been saved, and it is by grace that God could possibly use people like us for his purposes. We haven't been saved to just sit back 
and wait until we die. That way we can go to heaven. We've been saved and given a job to do, a mission to strive towards, to go out and make disciples of all nations. And that is a weighty, weighty responsibility. You know, not every church can have a huge building. Not every church can have all the bells and whistles. Not every church can have a massive staff. But every church can and should have high standards for their leaders. If that's the one thing they can have, they should have it. Why? Because our mission matters too much to settle for anything less. We have been given an eternal responsibility. And I pray that every single one of us, as members of this church as leaders in this church, that we will take that responsibility seriously. And I trust that by God's grace, if he can save us in spite of our sin, he can use us in spite of our sin. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those passages that really just can kind of be a punch in the gut sometimes. And it can be humbling and it can be convicting and it can be challenging. But thank you for your word and thank you for being so clear about what you expect your church to be and what you expect your church to look like. God, like we talked about, we are beggars leading other beggars to bread. And yet you can use beggars like us to accomplish your purposes. And God, if that doesn't show your grace then I don't know what does. And I pray that every single one of us will find ourselves reading this passage and and, and being just blown away by these standards that you have set for us, but at the same time trusting that, you know what? Your grace is enough. That your grace is enough to make up for when we fall short. And God, I thank you that your spirit is working on every single one of us, slowly but surely. And sometimes it feels like one step forward and two steps back, and two steps forward and one step back, and we feel like we're spinning our wheels. But God, we know that you're doing something. And I pray that we will trust in your time. I pray that we will have patience for what you're doing. God, I pray that you will be with the leaders at this church, be with the leaders at other churches, that they might lead as men of maturity and integrity and humility. And I pray that your name, through the witness of those people and through the witness of every single person here, would be glorified and lifted up. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we close out today, I'd like you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 14 through 16, rather. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. That's what we proclaim here at Prairie View. That's what the leaders here proclaim at Prairie View, not just with our words, not just with our sermons, but I pray that we will proclaim that with our lives, that Jesus came in the flesh, 
that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, taking the wrath that you and I deserve, taking the punishment for sins that we rightfully earned and taking it upon himself and thus promising us that we can have eternal life with him. He rose from the grave. He ascended to be at the right hand of the father and he will return one day. And I pray that if you have not believed in this, that you will make that decision this morning. I pray that you will take that seriously. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. You don't even have to make a decision this morning. You may just have questions. You may just have concerns, but I pray that you'll talk to them. They'd be happy to answer your questions, happy to pray with you. So take advantage of those guys. They'd love to talk to you as we sing this last song.